0: Good afternoon.
1: Good-looking crowd.
0: Yeah, <laughs> easy for you to say. Um, this is in the matter of Garrick? Yes, sir. Okay, thank you. And several others versus uh, Cheyenne Bennett individually and several others. um mr flora you are reserving five minutes yes your honor. okay and mr ho and mr blakelock are you both going to speak have you made arrangements to split up your own time yes, sir. okay you may be heard thank you your honor
2: May it please the court, I, I will initially note that our claims are not against Cheyenne Bennett. she's uh, another one of the plaintiffs in the case, it's against the anonymous hospitals. Uh, to begin, in April 2019, those anonymous hospitals hired a, for a position in their sterile processing department. This position did not require anything other than a high school diploma at the time of hiring. For the next six months, that new employee would do on-the-job training and would, it was expected to do some degree of self-study. But in the same six months, that employee, with no licensing, proceeded to not clean instruments properly. Specifically, did not use a brush when cleaning what are called lumen instruments, but are functionally just tubes. At no point in those six months did that employee do that correctly. As a result, 1,181 patients who underwent surgeries using those tubed instruments had to be sent a letter by the hospital informing them that they may have been exposed to hepatitis or HIV. Because this employee, this unlicensed employee, conducted what is a, a ministerial task with no expertise, skill, or independent judgment, a task that is equally available outside of the hospital setting, and is a task the failure of which is capable of understanding by average jurors, it amounts to ordinary negligence. As a result, it is not susceptible to the governance of the Indiana Medical Malpractice Act. However, even if this case were governed by the Indiana you're
0: If you're the surgeon and um, you need to use instruments, would you say that the use of those instruments is integral to what you're doing as a surgeon?
2: I would, Your Honor, but it's not the whether
0: an instrument- whether it's clean or not doesn't matter as long as he has the equipment to use?
2: No, Your, Your Honor, it does matter whether it's clean or not. But the doctor is not exercising his understanding. He's not exercising his skill or judgment in getting that instrument ready.
1: Well, so there's a lot of medical malpractice claims that aren't related directly to the doctor's conduct, aren't there?
2: There are, Your Honor, but in each of those cases, it is related to at least someone with a licensure's conduct. In fact, the way the Medical Malpractice Act is written, if there is, if there is one individual in the case, then that one individual's specialty must be re- represented by two individuals on the medical review panel. To be on the medical review panel, you must hold a license. Here, there is one individual who has been sued. That is the SPD tech. He is not a licensed individual. There is, while in in the the Bennett case they have named him, there is no way under the the act for a panel to be formed because that individual does not have a license. That individual's specialty cannot be represented on the panel because no one in his specialty has a license. So under the act, the, the fact of a licensure is a bright line rule. So far, this court in Ransbottom noted that the lack of a, of a requirement for a license, there is a registered nurse, but the lack of a, a requirement for a license does tend to indicate that it is not the, the, exper- the exercise of expertise, skill, or judgment that would be covered under the Medical Malpractice Act. But There's the, no
1: claim against the hospital in this
2: case? There is a complaint against the hospital, Your Honor. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought I misheard you. No, the hospital is not an individual, so there is, there is no The obliga-
1: hospital is subject to the Medical Malpractice Act, isn't it?
2: Yes, you're, yes, Your Honor. Okay. And, in fact, the reason the SPD tech could even be arguably subject to it is as an employee of the hospital. But when we're looking at what is the conduct, under the Medical Malpractice Act, there to be covered, it must be both the exercise of expertise, skill, or judgment, and it must be the provision
1: of health care. Well, did the hospital impose a protocol for sterilization of the instruments? The protocol for the sterilization
2: of the instruments is primarily done through the manufacturer and it is a requirement to follow the manufacturer. Did the
1: hospital impose protocols for the sterilization of the
2: instruments? There are protocols from the hospital for the sterilization of instruments, but the, the protocols at issue in this case are ma- failure to follow manufacturer protocols. And as the SPD
0: text, Well, did the hospitals vary from the manufacturer's protocols, or are they identical?
2: On these instruments, they were identical. If there are... If so whether,
0: whether the claim is that he didn't follow the manufacturers, he also then wouldn't have followed the hospitals.
2: Uh, sorry, Your Honor, say that again?
0: If your comment is he sued that the, the regs were under the manufacturer, but the hospital's regs are exactly the same, then failure to follow the manufacturer's regs were also failure to follow the hospital's.
2: Yes, it is, Your Honor. Okay, But the, because those regs are made by a manufacturer who isn't a physician, it is fundamentally just the failure to follow a manufacturer's well, regs.
0: Well, could the hospital have had less stringent or more stringent rules or different rules?
2: If the hospital did that and it resulted in?
0: No, that's not what I asked. Just it, Could they have had their own set of rules?
2: Presumably,
1: yes, Your
0: Honor. Okay, but they chose to use the same rules as the manufacturer.
1: And Again, presumably, yes, Your Honor. It still requires an exercise of judgment by the hospital, right? Whether Whether you're going to adopt those rules or you're going to adopt some other protocol, correct?
2: In theory, yes, Your Honor. It's not the exercise of judgment. Why is it only in
1: theory? Isn't that, in fact, exactly what happened?
2: I don't have the counterfactual, so it would appear to be what happened, Your Honor. But here, the SPD tech is using no judgment whatsoever. He's using the judgment of the manufacturer. Imposed not, by the hospital. If the, the hospital chose not to make any alternatives, then Well, yes. the
1: tech doesn't work for the manufacturer. The tech works for the hospital, right? Yes, he does, Your Honor. So he's doing what the hospital tells him to do.
2: Yes, sir, right? he does, Your Honor. OK. But, the the tech, whether he worked for the hospital or worked for the manufacturer, would be doing the exact same thing. So if this,
1: these instruments. We don't have a case where he's working for the manufacturer.
2: I agree we wouldn't have a case, well, we would have a a lawsuit against the manufacturer and that the fact that if these instruments came directly from the manufacturer and had not been properly sterilized by the manufacturer, that not only would not be medical malpractice, it would be your run of the mill products liability case. In the Randsbottom case and also in the BR case, this court noted the fact that the same conduct that happened to occur in a hospital or in an OBGYN's office occurred in those locations was, uh, it it was not a requirement. Because it wasn't required for the conduct to occur in one of those healthcare facilities, that meant it's not medical malpractice, it's not the provision of healthcare, because it's not unique to those facilities. As even the trial court judge noted in, in this case, a tattoo parlor is required to sterilize all instruments before use, but as this court noted in, in Rand's bottom, no one would argue that tattooing is the provision of health care. But isn't sterilization central to promoting a patient's health? Well, the, the absence of sterilization might be. So, so an instrument that is on sterile would be inappropriate. What the hospital has chosen to do here is take the process of sterilizing instruments. In fact, Notably, on Lumen instruments, it's very common for hospitals to, to not reuse them at all. It's very common to use the manufacturers and dispose of it because they can be difficult to, to sterilize. But in this instance, you have, uh, you, you have uh, forgive me. I've lost my train of thought on that, and I don't believe it's coming back. Uh, your, your question was, your honor isn't sterilization of the instruments central to the promotion of a patient's health? Right, and yes, if, they're, if the instruments are on sterile, then it, it's dangerous, but the same task here is performed outside of hospital settings all the time by contract sterilization departments. Again, well, a
0: lot of things are done both in, by a doctor in a hospital or by a hospital itself, and then the same act can be done outside, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that which is done in the hospital keeps the character of what someone else might do it. I mean, we're really talking about what happened here and not what might have happened elsewhere.
2: But Your Honor, the conduct that would be occurring outside of the hospital would still have to be some degree of the practice of medicine for it to be covered by the act. So just because it's done in the doctor's office, or say an EMT shows up to someone's house and provides some degree of medical care, it's at least still a medical act here with the sterile processing department that happens to be the same thing as though there were a private contractor doing it outside of the hospital that private contractor is well, not we in don't the have facility. that case no your honor we do not have the case but the fact that it could have occurred just like in Ransbottom the laser operation was performed in many other facilities other than the OBGYN office the case
1: before this court the Ransbottom what? case the surgical instruments were not used to perform medical treatment the instruments here were used to perform and provide medical treatment. In fact, they were instrumental to uh, the physician performing surgery. Right? Yes, Your Honor. Just like the okay, lamp. You, don't, you been... don't think that distinction is significant <laughs> between this situation and Rand's bottom? If we were just distinguishing
2: it in Rand's bottom, yes. But Pluward shows us where it was a surgical lamp being moved by a registered nurse at the direction of a physician to be used in a circumcision that the mere fact that an instrument is being used during a surgery is not enough. Further, Your Your Honors, and shown clearly. You can't
1: have a surgery
2: without a surgical instrument, can you? No, you cannot, Your Honor. And in this day and age, you can't have a surgery without a power grid either. But just because the the janitorial staff or the engineering staff is keeping the lights on in the building doesn't make it the provision of medical care. Second, the, this court has long recognized, actually the Supreme Court and Howard versus Gordon recognized, that there has to be the exercise of expertise, skill, or judgment. And as the testimony in, the, in this case shows, the SPD tech himself has testified, he was not using any independent judgment. He would just follow the requirements. Similarly, Or the, not following the requirements. Apparently not follow the requirements. Obviously, if he felt followed the requirements, we wouldn't be here. But the other issue is that at, as a threshold question, whether this even goes to a medical review panel and whether the Medical Malpractice Act applies, as recognized in, in Roberts uh, Robertson by this court, as recognized by the Indiana Supreme Court in adopting the Ray case, there's the initial question of, is this something that requires expert testimony anyway? All the, the structure of the Medical Malpractice Act in sending cases to a panel requires is that we get from the panel unique expertise that is not
1: otherwise capable of being provided. If we find that the Medical Malpractice Act does not apply to this set of circumstances, does that undercut your argument that uh, this case is not appropriate for class action treatment?
2: No, it does not, Your Honor. So the the question of whether this is or is not medical malpractice doesn't change the, the analysis under Rule 23. We're going to have the, the same implications, the same impacts upon upon patients. The only question here is- So what's theory, your
1: objection to it being a uh, class action proceeding if it's if it's found not to be a medical malpractice
2: case? Well, Your Honor, as the, the plaintiff in this case, I do not object to it being class action proceeding. I am adamantly pushing for it being class action proceeding. Well, I, I have argued to the trial court both that this is not medical malpractice, but also that we can certify it within the, the context of the Medical Malpractice Act as a preliminary determination. Can we do
1: both? Can, can we find that Medical Malpractice Act applies and the court has jurisdiction to proceed in a class action?
2: Yes, Your Honor. If the court finds that the Medical Malpractice Act applies, then as this court instructed in Ling versus Webb, we can proceed, we should be able to proceed as a preliminary uh, determination. How,
1: how, as a practical matter, is the trial court supposed to handle that with respect to the uh, panel review process?
2: The trial court is going to have to do one of two things, and the trial court will have to decide this at certification. So, the, the one of two things that the, the court will have to do, and this is part of the, the certification question under administrative feasibility and superiority under 23B3, is are we going to certify it on individual issues or are we going to certify the full case? Uh, typically, under certification of a full case, the, the Garricks would be the only ones who need to go through the panel at all. Uh, whether under issue certification, Every claim would have to go through the panel is not clear under the act and not clear until the, the trial court addresses that and we can figure out whether class certification is appropriate but at all that's in this case. It's not a
1: practical application of the panel's time and resources, is it?
2: Well, Your Honor, it, it may or may not be. That's a determination for the, the class certification process. The, the question in whether class certifications can ever be part of a preliminary determination, that, that's the real question here. So are there circumstances where it's more effective for the panel? Absolutely could be, especially when the alternative here, we've got 1,181 patients. In fact, we have separately filed a claim on behalf of 315 individuals that is before a single panel right now. And there is no, as the Countersville case recognized in this court, there is no mechanism that the court can order that be separated. We have used Joinder as we would be entitled to do in any trial court, and as we've recognized uh, or as we've cited in the briefing the medical malpractice act even mentions that there are can be multiple plaintiffs in selecting a panel
1: are you making a claim for any form of damages other than emotional distress at this point
2: we are not your honor the claim is entirely for emotional distress arising from the receipt by the plaintiffs and so, receipt by the patients and by the, the information transmitted to their romantic partners that they have potentially been exposed to HIV and hepatitis, which is akin to the Dollar N versus Sloan
1: case. Do you need a medical review opinion uh, on causation on that? No, you we should? do not, Your Honor. Why
2: no, not? No, no more so than was required in Dollar N versus Sloan. Now, of course, not even arguably. I'm sorry, what did you say? Said no more than would have been required in Dollar N versus Sloan, in which a, a woman staying in a hotel room. Got her her hand pricked by a, a needle left by an intravenous drug user. Was informed by a doctor as a result that she was going to have to undergo testing for, for up to 10 years to determine whether she's contracted HIV. In the same circumstance, the fear is not something that we need medical testimony from the panel.
0: Are you um, Are you relying on res ipsa loquitur?
2: In that cir- we may have to at some point. I don't think we will necessarily have to. The, the mere question in a negligent infliction of emotional distress is, first, is there an impact? Surgery is generally going to be sufficient under, under Indiana case law for the impact. Touching. Then, Then the question will be, is it a reasonable fear? Receiving a letter that says you may now have hepatitis or you may now have HIV, we posit and it may have to be decided as a matter of law, but we posit is a reasonable fear, just like it was in Dollar in versus Sloan. So the, the question of causation at that point is not a medical question other than at most someone could try to weigh in on, is it a reasonable fear that a person being told by a hospital that you may have hepatitis or HIV should should result in emotional distress? It's your
1: position that uh, the fact that they might have disparate uh, damages doesn't preclude it from being treated as a class action.
2: Correct, Your Honor. Under So some case law gets as specific as to point out that the question of individual damages it being reserved for subsequent trials or subsequent manners of determination is a a facet of issue certification. But the the bulk of the authority on that, the Butler versus Sears and Roebuck, I think it's the second version of that after it came back from the Supreme Court by Judge Richard Posner, makes the statement that it would drive a nail through the heart of class actions to require an identity of damages between the patients or between the the class members. So it's routine within class actions, particularly any form of injury. To have uh, individual determinations. Sticking with the question of whether the Medical Malpractice Act allows class actions as a preliminary determination, the the trial court never considered this court's determination in in Ling versus Webb. Ling versus Webb clearly answers the question and says a party, instead of paraphrasing it, just take what the court said. Plaintiffs who wish to proceed in a medical malpractice class action may file the proposed complaint with the trial court and request preliminary determination of class certification at the same time that such complaint is being considered by the medical review panel, which is precisely what we did, and we did that specifically because Ling versus Webb told us to do it. Within four days of filing the case, we filed our motion for class certification invoking Ling. The trial court never considered Ling, or at least never in its opinion. Which, as a prima as an initial point, the trial court not following what this court has instructed it to do is error. Now, whether this court deems that we should step aside and do something different in the circumstance, uh, that's up to the, this panel. But I will note it has been argued that Ling versus Webb threw this out as dicta. Well, as Budden instructs us, if there is an apparent conflict between a statute and trial rule 23, the application trial rule 23, but at the very least there isn't the bright line bar that we encountered in the the Melowitz versus Ball State case. That the two statutes should be... You haven't
1: lost be, that one yet, have you?
2: I haven't lost it yet, Your Honor. You, you, I believe the last substantive line I had in the petition transfer was that the court should adopt this court's well-reasoned opinion, but on that issue, Button is slightly different. It's where is where there's not a one-for-one one bar or there's not a clear bar. The two statutes need to be interpreted coextensively. In in Ling versus Webb, Judge Bailey's opinion seems to show the panel gave that consideration, or because the close of, of that portion of the analysis says accordingly, there are other procedural avenues to present a class action complaint in the context of a medical malpractice act. If there's not, then we run into both the, the problem that's manifested in the Nolan case from the Supreme Court of Alaska, or as Judge Crohn, the panel you were on found in Melowitz versus Ball
1: State, that the two are, are a direct conflict. Is there a statute of limitations problem uh, as a logistical matter if the class is not certified?
2: There could be. It's it's not entirely clear because Ling versus Webb, on its face, was dealing with American pipe tolling. And to save the concept of American pipe tolling, the court instructed, the filing of a case to trigger it is the filing of a complaint in court, and at that time you should seek preliminary determination. If it's this court's determination that that we cannot do preliminary determinations, and that parties are now required to go individually through panels before they can subsequently be members of a class, then yes, it doesn't seem that American pipe tolling would ever be able to apply in those circumstances. It's going to require the opt-in process that the Alaska Supreme Court dealt with in Nolman, which they found to be in direct conflict with Rule 23. And certainly doesn't work as Budden instructs that the two should be found to be somehow compatible. And it merits note that the trial court focused entirely on the Griffith versus Jones case, but in state, or the, the Supreme Court's cases in Highland and Vencare, Show that Griffith is not as narrow as both the trial court found and defense counsel will argue. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
3: May it please the court. My name is James Ho. I represent the appellee, Anonymous Hospital. I'll be dealing with the issue of the application of the Medical Malpractice Act to these causes. Mr. Blakelock from the Patients Compensation Fund will be dealing with the subject matter jurisdiction in the event that the Medical Malpractice Act applies. In this case, if we're going to talk about what the Medical Malpractice Act applies to, it begins and ends with the statutory definition of what malpractice is under the Indiana Medical Malpractice Act. It's a tort or breach of contract based on healthcare or professional services that were provided or should have been provided by a health care provider to a patient. All of those points are satisfied in this case. The claims sound in tort. They are based on health care provided to the patients. They are, the health, the anonymous hospital is a health care provider by statute. All of its employees, including the sterile processing technician at issue, by statute are healthcare providers. And each of these cases clearly involves health care provided to a patient. It falls under the definition of malpractice according to the statute. Howard versus Regional Health Systems v. Gordon is kind of an interesting case. In that case, the Supreme Court of Indiana found that missing hospital records constituted a cause that would fall under the Medical Malpractice Act. And in that case, whoever was charged with maintaining the records wasn't preparing instruments to be involved in a surgery, but they were maintaining medical records and and what the Supreme Court said was surely the skillful, accurate and ongoing maintenance of test and treatment records bears strongly on subsequent treatment and diagnosis of patients. It's part of what patients expect from healthcare providers. It's difficult to contemplate that such service falls outside the act. And with just a couple of changes of words, we could say that Proper sterilization of surgical instruments bears strongly on the treatment of patients, whether complications are uh, avoided or whether they're caused.
1: What practical difference does it make to your client whether the claim is brought as a negligence claim, a street negligence claim, or it's brought as a claim under the Medical Malpractice Act?
3: In this case, Your Honor, we believe that the issue has to go through a medical review panel because expert testimony is necessary. Expert testimony in this regard. Now, it's not a common case, but what the Indiana cases talk about is a standard of care prevalent in the medical community when it talks about whether expert tests- It's the same standard
1: of care if it was a straight negligence claim, isn't it?
3: It is, but because it's a standard of care prevalent in the medical community, by statute, it has to go through the medical review panel. And of course, there are procedural parts to that. There's a substantive issue of- Well, the, the,
1: the, the, the medical review panel is not dispositive of the no, claim. No, it's not, Your Honor it just it just goes through but but if, if what you're arguing is that uh, it would require expert testimony to establish a standard of care that's that same testimony would be required in a straight negligence claim would it not i agree with that your okay Honor. so my question is other than running this through uh, a non-dispositive medical review panel what is the practical consequence to your client one way or the other
3: your Honor, one of the practical consequences is the limitation of damages under the Medical Malpractice Act. There's, there's no use for us to avoid that. That's an issue. What's that's the, aggregate r- the aggregate limit? The aggregate limit goes according to the size of the hospital, and, Your Honor, I don't have that uh, okay. available to me at this time. But
1: that's what you're talking about, the aggregate limit, right? The aggregate limit. You're not, you're not anticipating that people being upset at getting this letter, just the emotional distress, is going to exceed the cap on an individual recovery, are you? I would
3: not believe that's, that's the case. Your you know Honor. what
1: that cap number is.
3: Uh, under these cases, I think we're still under the $250,000. Right. Um, Your Honor, we, we've heard about the, the, the pleading of negligent infliction of emotional distress, and that's what they're seeking damages for. And has, as has correctly been pointed out, this issue means that there has to be a direct impact. The McKenzie, the Community Health Network versus McKenzie eliminated negligence claims because there was no direct impact in that case. It had what, to do what with What about getting
0: it. the letter? You touched, you felt that letter. I mean, when you I, swallow I, I, something, the, the, the case said, well, did you feel a scratch or did you just swallow it? So what about just feeling the paper? Isn't that the same kind of impact as feeling the piece of food go down your throat?
3: There's no Indiana precedent that says that receiving paper and, and, and reading a paper. But even in that regard, Your Honor, it still doesn't eliminate it from the act. Because in Harris versus Raymond in 1999, it was found that a health care provider has a duty to warn a patient if it finds out after treatment that something about the treatment is hazardous. I'm familiar a with that
1: case. I decided it in this room. I'm very familiar with that, that case, Your Honor. So that's not the sole basis of the, the uh, cause of action? No. You're saying the impact of the surgery with, a, with an unsterilized instrument is not sufficient impact to, to warrant a uh, negligent infliction of emotional distress?
3: No, I'm absolutely saying that that's the case. What I'm saying is, is you, they can't have it both ways. Have the surgery be the basis of the direct impact and yet healthcare is not an issue and therefore it falls outside the act. If the surgery is the basis for the direct impact, then the surgery is the provision of health care by a health care provider and the Medical Malpractice Act has to apply. But, but what I'm saying in that regard is that in Harris versus Raymond, in Cox versus Paul, CACDAC versus West, what's in the letter, what's in the warning, the timing of the warning, whether the warning is adequate and whether it's reasonable, all f- fell under the Medical Malpractice Act. So even if we look only at the letter, the hospital deciding to send the letter and the contents of the letter, which talked about available testing, treatment options, it included the fact that um, it's very low risk. All of those things that are included in the letter still fall into the Medical Malpractice Act because it has to do with the interaction of a health care provider based in their treatment.
1: It's to an obligation the imposed as a result of the i it's an obligation imposed upon your client as a result of the relationship, right?
3: Absolutely. And that's the the
1: relationship between a
3: healthcare provider and a patient. Um, And um, in this case, we've we've talked about, there's several cases out there that talk about when healthcare providers are involved in causes of action, not every cause of action is one that falls under the Medical Malpractice Act. But one of the, the shorthand things we can look at is, is this something that just happened to happen with a healthcare provider or is it something that only happens with a healthcare provider? Fluard case, going way back. Are lamps bolted to the wall any place other than hospitals? Can they fall off on people any place other than the hospital? The of cor- answer is, of course, yes. Therefore, it's not particular to the healthcare provider. Patient relationship. A loose board. Can that happen someplace other than a hospital? Well, certainly. The Ray case about Legionnaire's disease, well Legionnaire's disease was first identified in a hotel, not in a hospital. These are all things that can happen places other than healthcare providers. What happened in this case, which is the possible exposure to pathogens through the use of surgical instruments in the midst of a surgery in a hospital, can only take place during the provision of healthcare. The Rans Bottoms case is an interesting one, but at its heart, it's Yes, a, a, a registered nurse, but the registered nurse was providing cosmetic services, laser hair removal, not medical care. So it has nothing to do with where it was or what, or, or, or uh, who was providing it. It has everything to do with she was not providing medical care. Well, this is medical care. It's very clearly medical care. The term ministerial gets used to say it's ministerial, it just doesn't But ministerial is not a word that's used in determining whether or not in Indiana cases whether or not something falls under the act. He says this is an unskilled person and this person um, didn't have training. Well, that's not accurate. It's true that the sterile processing technician could be hired without certification. But here's the way this works. He's hired and then until he's trained and able to, able to work on his own, he was supposed to be under the supervision of a trained sterile processing, processing technician. He's getting on-the-job training and academic training and self-study and then is tested on that. One of the claims that's been made by the patients in this case is inadequate training, inadequate supervision. And so when I hear that this is, comes down to the letter, I go back to the complaints that were filed. I see that they pled medical malpractice, claiming that negligent sterilization was performed, claiming there was inadequate training, claiming there was inadequate supervision, all of which is the hospital's responsibility. They pled medical malpractice. They pled it. So they can't now say, well, it's, it's not medical malpractice. It's not really medical malpractice, but they pled all of these, Alleged failures by the sterile processing technician now um, the, again, this is a highly complex, and we've included in our briefing quite a bit quite a bit of material about the complexities here, but we're not talking about the complexities of in this case, this specific thing happened we're talking about the medical malpractice act and the cases interpreting it talk more as a whole. in other words, is the actions by a sterile processing technician but is what he does. Is that something where you have to exercise professional judgment? The answer is yes. And you could say, well, on an individual, you could break it down to each tiny task, but that's an impractical thing. That's an impractical standard to set. The, the key is, is, does a sterile processing technician have to exercise professional judgment? The answer is yes. He has to know, we talked about, was talked about earlier policies and the instructions for use for manufacturers. The hospital sets general policies. There are also instructions for use, but the testimony in the case from the experts, and we, did, had, we had testimony from a nationwide expert. His name's Dr. Rutella. He's with the University of North Carolina. He's a co-author of the CDC's um, standards for hospital sterilization. He talked about all the many things that a sterile processing technician has to do. Is it the same standard of care that a physician has to adhere to? No. Or a nurse? No. But it's a standard of care prevalent in the medical community. And that's what the cases talk about. Because each hospital that has surgeries take place within it have to be able to ensure that it's getting sterilized instruments for use by its surgeons. That's the standard. It can can do so by contracting or it can do so by having a sterile processing department, but it's a standard of care prevalent in the medical community. Other states, most notably Louisiana, which has a Medical Malpractice Act that was modeled on Indiana's. The state courts, the Court of Appeals of Louisiana, the Supreme Court of Louisiana, and the federal courts applying Louisiana law have all found that the alleged negligent sterilization of medical instruments falls under the Medical Malpractice Act, using the same definitions of medical malpractice in health care that we use in Indiana. In addition, in Virginia and Ohio, cases, states that don't have a similar Medical Malpractice Act, but cases involving alleged negligent sterilization have both been found to sound in medical malpractice. The same is the case here. This case falls under the Medical Malpractice Act. It was a tort based on the provision of health care by a health care provider to patients. Now, Mr. Blakelock will address the issue of um, the lack of subject matter jurisdiction that the trial court had to grant the relief requested by the patients. Thank Thank you.
4: May it please the court, my name is Rich Blakelock on behalf of the Indiana Department of Insurance and Patients' Compensation Fund. I'm here to ask that the court affirm the trial court's decision that it had no jurisdiction to certify a class under the Medical Malpractice Act's preliminary determination provision for three reasons. Number one, Griffith versus Jones is the unambiguous law of Indiana, which limited jurisdiction for preliminary determinations in a way that does not allow certification of of, uh, class action under Trial Rule 23. The plaintiff's efforts to distinguish Griffith are not convincing. Number two, Trial Rule 23 and the preliminary determination statute do not conflict. They can be harmonized to give each effect. And number three, it is for the legislature to decide policy for this state, and it set a strong one in 1975 with the Medical Malpractice Act, including the Medical Review Panel process, which is a substantive process, primarily, of a panel of physicians to inform individual plaintiffs and defendants to try to encourage settlement and early resolution of cases. Procedural Rule 23 cannot be used to trump that substantive process and policy that was enacted by the legislature. I'm curious
2: about language in Rule 23, and I'm specifically talking about subsection C1, where it directs the court as soon as practicable after the commencement of an action, the court shall make this preliminary determination. Um, And then it indicates later that the determination or order under that subdivision may be conditional and may be altered or amended before the decision is on the merits. So how is it not a preliminary determination? And if it is, how is that harmonized as you're
1: you're speaking of?
4: Well, first of all, it requires an action, which a proposed complaint is not. And I think the, the uh, what is a preliminary determination, I think it's, it's, there's some other language in trial rule two and three, which I don't believe it's really an action. You can't convert a something that's not an action under uh, Ling into something that is by virtue of filing a preliminary determination action. So I think you've got that issue as a threshold thing. The, the second point is what you have there is still a procedural law by any, uh, understanding and what you have in the medical malpractice act with the panel process is a there's some procedure to it you have to go through it but the meat of it is the substance of it which is you have to get an opinion on duty breach and importantly here did the conduct lead to complained of lead to any harm to the plaintiff to each plaintiff and so that is a substantive provision and so if we look at the melowitz versus ball state case when of judge crone's opinions that really talks about um the uh the issue of conflicting provisions and the conflicting provisions that are at our concern are if the court the supreme court enacts some procedural rules that the legislature tries to trump which it did in Melowitz with respect to you can't have class actions procedure versus procedure supreme court sets the procedures supreme court wins when it's Procedure from the Supreme Court and substance on the, um, the legislature—that's not a conflict, and that's the—that's con- the issue here. Is what the what would happen if the plaintiffs are given the relief that they want? Is the substantive decision that the legislature made in 1975 to have the Medical Malpractice Act, which includes this very important process of the panel, which the Johnson versus St. Vincent case from 1980, the seminal case on this, said, is a significant reason why the panel is there, they acknowledge there's gonna be delay from it, but hopefully it will weed out cases that are good, that are bad, um, and, and encourage settlement. So that substantive issue does not conflict with Trial Rule 23. It, in fact, Trial Rule 23 would sort of, in, in this particular context, as the plaintiffs are arguing, rid every plaintiff, every individual plaintiff, from going through that process. And what, uh, just to point to some language, Indiana Code 341884, which says an action, singular, against a health care provider may not be commenced in a court in Indiana before the claimant, apostrophe S, singular, proposed complaint has been presented to a medical review panel and opinion given by the panel. So I think we're looking, when they talk about conflict, we're looking at procedure versus substance, and that is no
1: conflict. Um, Getting back to Griffith, the court... Griffith didn't involve a... uh a request for uh, class certification? Did it? No, no, it did not. No. Okay. In fact, Griffith, uh, the uh, the conduct of the trial court that was reversed, was the trial court trying to dictate to the panel uh, certain matters regarding how they operated? Right, right. How how? What does that have to do with whether the trial court in this case would have jurisdiction to entertain uh, a motion for class certification?
4: Well, in in two ways, Judge. First of all. In, in in explaining the scope of the preliminary determination statute uh, the court in griffin said that, that one of the things that can't happen is for a trial court to interfere with the work of the of the panel and,
1: and well, how here, does class certification interfere with the work of the panel
4: well the, what's being proposed here is you'd have one plaintiff go through and go through the panel and that would represent everybody and so if you look at the clause that i just cited
1: well they're not they're not interfering with the panel's uh, determination of that of, of that case or that opinion, you're saying they can't use that opinion to define a class in a class action, right? Well, yeah. What, that's, and, basi- that's really what you're arguing.
4: No, what I'm saying is that, that the statute, the substantive statute from the legislature says this. A panel opinion addresses liability as well as the conduct complained of was or was not a factor of the resulting damages. They, we may find that out about one plaintiff, but other ones may have no harm and, whatsoever. And the statute
1: says the panel can can rule on any or all of those? Yes. So the panel doesn't have to rule on that. The trial court's not telling them what they have to rule on. The, yeah, the trial court can't
4: do that actually. Right. Under right.
1: Yeah. But there but that doesn't preclu- how does that preclude the trial court from deciding whether or not to take the panel's determination and certifying a class that uh, comports with the ruling of the panel. How does that interfere with the panel's operation?
4: Well, for one, it's telling the panel what to do. You're going to rule no, on... that's it's not
1: telling what the panel what to do. It's after the panel's done.
4: Well, I know, but you, I, have a, I think what you're asking is, can they just do one panel? And then the, then the judge can say, I'm going to uh, uh, extrapolate Whether they panel. can
1: or they cannot is a separate question than whether or not that interferes with the operation of the panel. Right. That's the point I'm trying to make. You would agree with that? If, one person- if I'm the trial court yeah. and I'm not telling the panel you have to do this, you have to do that. Take these, this plaintiff, come, come back with an opinion just like you normally operate, and then I'll look at it and decide whether I can take the finding of the panel and construct a class that I think satisfies whatever the requirements are of a class action. I'm not in any way interfering with the panel, right?
4: Not directly to that one, but if you certify the class, then you're indirectly interfering with all the other hundreds of people behind it. I agree with you on the one, but but then you have once you if the judge says I'm going to certify this as a class and nobody else has to go through it then you are interfering with everybody else that's in line that we never get an opinion that the legislature said we had to get on a substance. So I would agree with you on the one, but I would respectfully disagree with the well, whole line on it depends on what the panel behind. says.
1: Pardon? It depends on what the panel says. If the facts are identical in that they didn't follow the protocol mm-hmm. for sterilization and they notified them, th- those facts would be uniform to a specific class that could be defined in that fashion
4: that's possible but what you what you also don't have is you still have some evidence of damages which is going to be different from every single one of these plaintiffs and that's that's kind of what
1: I was getting that's at. not an issue that the panel has to determine the value of those damages I,
4: I think it is if they find that there's a breach they can opine on that point they
1: can but they don't have to right
4: and what happened if you certify it you're taking that away from the rest of the panel of the 300 and some panelists that have gone through the issue of duty I, I it's probably Similar to a lot of these, but by certifying the class for the one person, let's just say that the the the, the uh, panel decides there is no causation issue here on this one particular plaintiff it goes to the judge. Okay, what are we going to certify? We're going to just keep going until we find that when there is causation.
1: Well, they, the panel's decision is not dispositive of the claim. Agree. Agree. So they could certify it and pursue the claim and and try to make the argument that the panel was wrong. Sure. So how does how does that preclude the trial court from having the authority to certify a class well, as long as, as they're not the, telling the panel what to do
4: well again i think they are with respect to the other ones behind the
1: first one I think you well you I may have, have a defense you'd have to raise a defense and say that this this claim for these other individuals needs to go to a, a panel you well, can that's make the that kind of argument the
4: point. yeah that's that's what we're i mean that's the point it has to go through based on what the legislature said. i mean the other plain and simple reason is rather, so this
1: gets back to the the question that i that i asked uh, uh, your, your predecessor there, why, what difference does it make to your client, whether or not this is a straight negligence claim or a medical malpractice claim? It's the inherent uh, inconvenience of requiring 1,086 or so uh, members to go through 1,086 panels, right? No,
4: from our standpoint, uh, I mean, if it's not negligence, I'm sorry, if it is ordinary negligence, I'm not standing here. I'm out of the, I'm out of the equation. So that, that, to me, is a little different. I'm in the equation based on the trial court's ruling, and so.
0: To you, the question is money. Pardon. To you, the question no, is money. No,
4: we we fought it. At, I was. Uh, it's the act makes strange bedfellows. I was arguing against application of the act at, uh, to the trial court. We decided not to appeal because the courts say these are razor-thin distinctions, and you know we just ultimately, after that opinion, decided not to appeal it. What what we are saying is Griffith. Straightforward says trial rule twelve, trial rule eight, trial rule twenty six through thirty seven. It makes no mention of twenty three, and uh, and so that I mean that's the law of the land at least until unless the legislature changes it or the supreme court changes it.
1: If a class is certified, are they is the entire class subject to the aggregate uh, statutory recovery? I don't know because I don't think the act contemplates that. There's right. never been a case in this state no. on I this mean, issue. We,
4: I've been involved in a case, Weinberger. There was an attempt to certify the class. It was not certified. There's never been a class certified in Indiana on medical malpractice. I've been involved in Weinberger, with Mr. Ho, um, other mass Have you found any
1: nationwide?
4: Pardon? Have you found any nationwide? Have I found any reason why? Any nationwide cases? No. Well, no, because it'd have to fall sort of under our act, which is... Our act
1: applies in a couple other states.
4: Well, yeah, I have not,
1: no. Neither Uh, have I.
4: Yeah, and I, and I assume my friend here in the uh, appellants' table would have found it. Um, so I see I've got a little bit of time left, but, but basically, Your Honor, uh, Your Honors, uh, we think that Griffith is unambiguous. The, the Medical Malpractice Act, as it relates to the panel, is a substantive process that St. Vincent versus Johnson's, or Johnson versus St. Vincent said is a very important part of the act, and that, that a process, 23, cannot trump that. Thank you.
2: you may close yes your honor beginning with the the cox versus paul and harris versus raymond cases that were cited by by the hospital it, your honor was uh, the trial court or trial judge on it you're quite familiar with those cases they were filed under the medical malpractice act but to say that they are medical malpractice cases i don't think accurately represents what the supreme court found in those cases in harris versus raymond the supreme court decided to grant summary judgment to the plaintiff without ever even mentioning a panel opinion cox versus paul makes even more clear there was a panel opinion the panel opinion found that there was no breach of the standard of care. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the patient, granting summary judgment on the duty issue, after finding that there is no evidence in the record that the, the, there wasn't a breach. There was no contrary evidence to the plaintiff's evidence of breach, which means the panel opinion didn't matter in that case. And Why didn't it matter? Well, Harris versus Raymond, the court made clear, not all medical malpractice cases are so technical that they require expert testimony, and when no reasonable jury could reach any conclusion other than the specific standard of care is applicable and was breached, the question of what specific standard is applicable and whether that standard was breached are questions of law for the court. That standard is the same standard that was drawn in Robertson, was drawn in Ray, as whether it's medical malpractice or not. Is there expert testimony required? Cox versus Paul shows on notice of breach of uh, failure to warn of subsequent injuries, the panel doesn't matter. The, the Supreme Court specifically found it didn't. To the, you don't have a claim for uh, breach of failure to warn, do no, you? No, they weren't. But Your Honor, turning back to the question of the hospital set these, these standards, so is that the, the exercise of expert judgment? The Supreme Court in the McKenzie case tells us it's not. Supreme Court says, to be sure, community uses professional judgment. When it establishes protocols for creating maintaining and accessing patient information but even if we assume that the mere exercise that, that, of that was
1: that was the maintenance of medical records that was also my case Yes, that was, that was not uh, the provision of, of medical services to directly to a patient correct C- correct your honor
2: but the, the the important portion
1: of the opinion says that the
2: the judgment used by the hospital in creating protocols that are not followed down the line is not the judgment that is necessary to be to trigger the medical malpractice act
1: that's record keeping as opposed to surgery.
2: It is. And the ultimate determination there was not the record keeping couldn't have been. It's that there wasn't a temporal link between the two. Your Honor, turning back to the, the question of uh, the maintenance of equipment in a hospital. In Pluward, the, the court actually said that the general duty is the duty to maintain premises and equipment. When you look at that juxtaposed to the Ray decision, the, the question then becomes, why is Legionnaires on the wall, on the bed, or on anything other than a scalpel, sufficient to not be medical malpractice, but that it happens to be on an instrument instead, or on equipment, is. Especially when Blue tells us that maintenance of equipment is ordinary negligence. Similarly, Hartz deals with a bed rail, but it's a hospital bed rail. It, it falls down. My bed doesn't have rails. Many people's beds don't have rails. It's not, it, it is unique to the hospital, but it's within common understanding that a bed rail should have been left up. Turning back to the question of, of licensing, we think that's a bright line rule under the Medical Malpractice Act, because like we said, the Cheyenne Bennett case can't form a panel as the act is drafted. There's one individual, he's not licensed, no one in his practice is licensed, they can't form a panel. Indeed, it, it merits note that the, that the hospital's own expert doesn't have a medical license. He couldn't be on a panel, even if he were lic- even if he was from Indiana. We'll note that our, our medical malpractice claims, they were pleaded in the alternative to maximize and protect our rights. So we didn't forfeit them by, by trying to protect them. Then when it comes to the, the class certification, I think Judge Kenworthy hit the nail on the head. The, the modern version of trial rule 23 comes from the, the 1966 amendments to the federal rules, where the, the number one thing there was to ensure that merits are not determined before, or any merit, merits decision, before people have the, the idea of whether to opt in or out of this class. If it goes through a panel first, there's going to be, if, if there has to be multiple channels through a panel, the people are going to opt into whichever class has a winning panel and stay out of the ones that don't. But even more on point, under the preliminary determinations, anything under 12B is a preliminary determination. 12B-7, is a determination of whether there has been a failure to join an indispensable party under Rule 19. 19D subjects itself to Rule 23. The whole point there is to create a sequencing issue. You cannot decide in a proposed class action whether there's been a failure to join indispensable parties before you decide class certification because decision of the class certification may solve the 12B7 issue. There's no way you can do the 12B7 without first deciding the 23. Thank you, Your Honors.
0: Thank you. Take nothing from the questions we ask, we do it to encourage the conversation. We would like to thank South Bend and St. Joseph County for making all the arrangements for this day and for the oral argument. This is sort of your stopping ground, would you like to?
1: Used to be. Uh, we got a bunch of people. To, yeah, uh,
0: I'll let you thank all of your former and colleagues and
1: put my cheaters away. I would
0: say current friends, but maybe not.
1: <laughs> well, we did, we did have security disarm the, uh, the whatnot uh, before they came in. Uh, yeah. I want to thank uh, Amy McGuire uh, who works for the uh, bar association for hosting the entire day. We're going to do a CLE program and uh, something else uh, uh, later on today. And I want to introduce, uh, and thank our uh, uh, state police officer, Sergeant Duhamy and uh, uh, our security, uh, Ashley Rose. And with us we have the honorable uh, Michael Gotch from uh, federal court, uh, the honorable Judge Singleton from uh, uh, St. Joe's Superior, uh, Judge uh, Broden from uh, uh, Circuit Court, is uh, Judge Hurley here? I can't see that far anymore. Judge Hurley. Uh Judge Wilson I know is here. I ran into him in the stairwell. And uh Judge Briscoe and uh Judge Maneer I see her. Judge Sanford, are you out there somewhere? Ah, okay. Oh, back there. Back row. All right, Judge Gamage, I see I see Andre. How are you doing? Um uh, also think uh counsel for both sides uh and I think that's uh, all, all of the uh, dignitaries.
0: And our special South Bend oral argument groupies.
2: I think we
1: have Judge Deloyan. Oh, oh Judge Deloyan, is he? Okay, oh, you, sorry have... about that. You weren't, you weren't on the, the list that I was given. So yes, welcome and thank, thank all of you. Um, at this point, we're gonna open up for oh, questions. Wait. We're going to questions on this? Yeah,
0: yeah we're going to go down to the Yeah, oil. we'll
1: go down. Uh, we're going to open up for questions. You can ask anything you want except anything about this case. Um,
0: which is what you want to ask. is what everybody but, wants to ask. And then when we're done with that, we're going to go into the other room for two seconds to take our robes off, and then we're going to do the CLE. Lawyers are free to stay. You're free to go. I mean, not now. You're free to have questions asked of you, not about the case. And we
1: would ask that when we do that, you move a Table around so we can do it from down there.
0: So good. All right.